Welcome to Madison Voices. Theater is a reflection of society and the times in which we live. We give voice to the artist's perspective on art, theater, family, and life. We want to take this time to celebrate the talent, passion, and stories of those who are part of the Madison Theater family. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Angelo Fraboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater at Malloy College. Music is a big part of our everyday lives and is an essential part of the Madison Theater. It permeates every part of our programming. It's primal. It grabs and stirs our emotions. It can help transport us to another moment in our lives altogether. It represents life itself. There are many life references to music. Love is like music. Every new rhythm gives life a whole new meaning. How true. Yet, we are all affected by music in our own unique way that takes us on our own individual journey. We usually can't choose the music that life plays for us, but we can choose how we dance to it. For me, music is life. My life has a soundtrack running through my brain consistently. Each song I hear stirs a memory or a feeling from my past or my current state of being. Music is life. Today I've invited our Madison Theater resident conductor, musical director, and the current musical director of the off-Broadway hit, Romeo and Bernadette, and a friend of mine, Aaron Gandy. Hello, Aaron, and uh, welcome to our podcast. Hey, glad to be with you guys. Let's start with your new project that was a huge success, Romeo and Bernadette. The success with the initial opening prompted the producers to move the show from a small off-off-Broadway theater to a larger off-Broadway venue. You were recently in tech rehearsals or you were just back in rehearsals and about to reopen when everything came to a crashing halt. Tell me about, tell me about this production and what's going on with it. Uh, we had a very successful four week run at a 99 seat theater on the far West side of Manhattan and got really terrific reviews. And the producers smartly said, Hey, we got to move this thing fast. And so in what seemed like a, an amazingly short bit of time, like five weeks, they uh, pulled the cast back into rehearsal and we were gearing up to to open the show in a new theater, a larger one. This time it would have been a 199-seat theater uh, called Theater 3, which is part of the Theater Row Complex. And we were on our third day of rehearsal, the morning of our third day, which was when we were to have begun tech rehearsals. And uh, the producer was there and delivered the news that uh, along with basically every other bit of live theater in New York City, our show had to go on ice, as he put it. So uh, we all were sent home and the sets went into storage and the costumes went into storage and everybody went about their way. Uh, And hopefully when things uh, gear back up, uh, we too can uh, reassemble the company and uh, find another theater, perhaps that same 199 seater, maybe another, who knows, and uh, try again. So fingers crossed. So the producers, they, you're not guaranteed to go back into that same theater. You guys just lost that contract or that that uh, lease. My understanding is that yeah, they had to remove the set from the theater, uh, and um, and if we were to go back, they would have to do a new deal in order for us to, you know, negotiate another block of time in that theater 
but as a, 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 my understanding is at the moment, we don't have any reserved. We're not first in line to get into that space. I think at the point when we close down, just like every theater, every show did, uh, you just didn't know what the future held. So they just sort of said, OK, we'll be back in touch when we oh. when we know what we're doing. No, that's that's frustrating. So how long were you down between the first run and then going back into rehearsal? Because I'm kind of curious, was it immediate? Why would you have to go back into rehearsals? Was it because of the size of the space or? Yes, it was the larger theater and uh, the the space we were in uh, on the far west side of Manhattan, the tiny space initially had no fly system. And because of the unique situation in that room, uh, there was no offstage right at all. <laughs> and it was just a you know very specific place. And the set was designed for that specific set of circumstances. And um, when we were preparing to move to the larger theater, suddenly it was a bit more of a normal setup. We had, we had flies, we had a stage left and a stage right. We had a cross under, under the stage. So all sorts of workarounds that we had created to make the initial run happen had to be rethought now that we were in a different space and um and that was an exciting prospect the set was larger for one um the stage was about twice as wide but just as shallow interestingly as the as the first theater because it this particular space we were going into was a wide and shallow stage so although we had lots of uh stage width very little stage depth, just as we had initially. So there was some re-choreographing that was going to happen to happen and uh, a good bit of blocking because there were lots of sets and things that now could come on both left and right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just to accommodate all these tiny little changes, we were taken back into rehearsal for two days to get our bearings on the new set. Uh, and then starting on the third day, as I said, we were to have begun tech. And that's where we froze. <laughs> now, now in this movie, I mean, you change the set, you change some costumes, choreography and staging. What about the music? I mean, that's your your purview here. Did you have did you have any additional music? Did you have any additional cast members that were coming in? Anything like that? The score remained the same, although there were two tiny little internal tweaks that the director and the writer wanted to make. And um those would have been easy to make within the context of the tech time that we had. Um, would have required a bit of different choreography, but that was already well in hand. Um, there were very minor changes. The size of the band was to stay the same. And in terms of the music, the only, the biggest change that uh, was going to be coming our way was the introduction of five new cast members who were our understudies, our new understudies. Wow. We had no understudies the first time around. It was a cast of nine, five men, two women, sorry, five men, four women. Um, uh, and there were no understudies for the first run, which is a bit of the roll of the dice, as you can yeah. imagine. But when we moved, the decision was made that, okay, we now need to, we're in a larger theater, People can get sick. You can get something booked. You can, you know, have a family emergency. You have to have understudies. And so the decision was made that we would have five. So we had had casting sessions uh, and we had found five remarkably talented people who could come in and cover all of the nine roles. And uh, those people were about to begin rehearsal. We hadn't actually seen them in a rehearsal yet because their contracts weren't to have started until two weeks after the rest of the cast had begun. So we actually never met those people. So explain that process. I mean, our listeners may not know why an understudy would start rehearsals 
after the rest of the cast? Why, why would that, why, you know, besides financially, but, you know, why are, are understudies brought in later than normal? Um, the thinking is you want to teach your primary cast what they're up to first, and then you turn to your understudies to teach them. If everybody's in the room at the same time, somebody's going to be sitting around a lot. So it ultimately is sort of a waste of time for people to to be there until the production is ready to teach them. Um, and in a normal show where you might be learning the show before opening, um, you know, no one knows what they're doing. So everyone's just learning music. So there could have been an argument for bringing them in early and letting them all learn it at the same time. But uh, because we were remounting a show that this cast had already done, uh, we made the decision that there was no need to bring in the understudies until two weeks later. Yeah, and that's very common in, in a lot of theater shows where they do that. And now when you talk about these understudies, you know, they don't, one understudy can cover up to three to four roles. Uh, roles. They can also cover uh, ensemble and principles. So talk a little bit on how that casting works and, and what the mindset is you know, for the musical director, because sometimes they're covering someone who's a baritone, uh, who's a lower part, lower men's part or a mid mid range part, but they also are covering a tenor. So they have to have both, which is the higher range. Talk about the complexities of that. It's exactly right. I'll use an example. In our show, there are two fathers uh, and the men, those two men have very different vocal demands. And one is a sort of a high rat pack kind of a tenor who um, does a lot of Bobby Darren-y kind of stuff. And the other is a very legit baritone sound who sings Neapolitan love songs. And so from a casting challenge, those are two very different types of singers. And the decision was made that the understudy who would cover both of the fathers would need to be able to cover either of them at any given time. In other words, we weren't going to hire two father understudies. There was going to be one... uh, uh, senior man in the cast, if you will, whose responsibility was to cover either father role. So the idea was that that person would need to be able to sing in both of those very different styles. So, uh, you know, knowing that was what our need was, we were able to be very specific with the agents that our casting director was approaching. And uh, and luckily we were uh, referred to a, a, a good handful of candidates who actually could managed to sing in both of those very different styles. It's amazing how talented New York City performers are. And we had little trouble actually finding people who could uh, hit both sides of that example. Um, uh, Other situations, I mentioned there's nine in the cast, but only five understudies. It's for that very reason. Some people are hired to cover more than one role. In some cases, they are covering uh, three roles. Uh, The three young men in the cast are all covered by one understudy who again has to sing in the styles of all three of those roles luckily those aren't as different as the two older men's roles are but but yeah you kind of have to go through and say well if such and such went out of the show one night because she might have sprained her ankle who what kind of person do we need standing around ready to go and you sort of work it out from there right you know sometimes shows have internal covers what we call internal covers that means they're on stage every night but if a principal goes down they move up into the principal spot or a a different spot while the swing or the understudy would go on for them in their role do you have anything like that in bernadette romeo and bernadette no we don't and the reason is because because it's a small cast virtually everyone in the show is a principal actor 
Right. And so, and, uh, or nearly like I was at Lion King for nine years and what you just described is, is what they use in larger cast shows where ensemble people are trained to step into the more featured roles if need be. So that, and if they do, then one of your offstage covers will then slide into that ensemble track. And the idea is that, uh, you know, you want the people who know the show the best to be stepping into those larger roles. And the logic in that scenario is that the people who are on stage in the ensemble every night have a very keen sense of what the tempo of the show is and certainly what all the marks are and the lines and all the music and everything. Um, uh, but in our show, because we have no chorus, no ensemble, uh, it didn't seem practical for any of our principals to step into another principal role. Even though right. that we have some smaller principal roles and some very big principal roles, like the two title characters, Romeo and Bernadette, those obviously are the largest of the principal roles, as you might imagine. But there are smaller principal roles. But even in those cases, it didn't seem practical for the smaller principals to step into a larger principal role, given right. the vocal and the acting demands. Right. So they went with a situation, uh, the producers and the director, uh, where, where the five understudies would remain off stage and not be a part of the onstage cast. That's that's amazing. Uh, it's more efficient that way as well. Because why why put two new people on when you only have to put on one, especially in in sort of a principal uh, geared show? Let's let's talk about the music now. When you start a new musical, you know everyone thinks, oh yeah, we just have to play some music and and the music just kind of happens. But there's a lot going into a new musical. And the music, you know, from vocal arrangements to orchestrations to copying those down for band parts, all those different things, uh, you know, teaching the different vocal tracks, teaching the different vocal lines, sort of talk about, you know, you do all that because you've done many shows for me and we, we work together on, on how to best facilitate this. So talk about how it is with the new show where you're getting... These uh, was did you do any of the orchestrations? Were the orchestrations done by the composer himself? Because usually we get lead sheets from a composer and and other musical people either do dance arrangements or orchestrations or whatever. Talk about all that. Uh, in this case, the score is uh, not an original score. Uh, the the, the oh. playwright Mark Saltzman decided mm -hmm. that the funnest thing to do for this comedy is to adapt existing Italian melodies that the world largely is very familiar with, like Caro Mio Ben. Um, <laughs> <Opera. laughs> and, uh, and what he did was he took these existing Italian melodies, very famous ones like that, and a handful of others, and he wrote new lyrics to them. Um, and I'll give you an example. What he did was the, the song Caro Mio Ben goes, Caro Mio Ben. Italian text, very mm -hmm. old song. What he did was he changed it into a 60s girl group sort of sound and he gave it an English lyric so that it became one tender word, boom, 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 that kind of thing. Dum, dum, dum. So he changed the words, obviously, he kept the melody, but he changed the tempo and the time signature of the song. So that it kind of had that boom, 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 kind of groove. And all of these conceptual changes uh, were his. He decided all that. But because he is a playwright who conceived all this, but not necessarily the composer, he definitely needed some music staff folks to come into the conversation and to help him realize his vision. And so in this case, uh, uh, Steve Orich the Broadway orchestrator Steve Orich, uh, mostly primarily known for 
orchestrating Jersey Boys, but with such a deep background in so many different styles and genres and eras of shows, uh, happily uh, said yes to, to coming on board the project and helping to realize the musical vision of the show. And Steve created the arrangements and the vocal arrangements for everything. Um, and, uh, and the two of them worked closely together for about four months last fall from about summer until November, I would guess. And uh, until they got it just right. And and then we went into rehearsal and the score was done. Now that, Angelo, you well know, is <laughs> not always the case. No, it you, isn't. You get into the rehearsal and, you know, day one of rehearsals, you realize six dozen things need to change and you stay up all night rewriting them and you show up the next day with a new version and you try that. And then yeah. you repeat that process virtually every day. We did not do that in this case uh, because... What a luxury. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, because the because Mark, the author, and Steve had had such close contact for so many months prior, they really took a fine-tooth comb to every bar in the entire show. And the, the, the thrill was that we walked into rehearsal with kind of a finished show. Just, here you go. And we taught it, made a few adjustments, basically pertaining to certain singers' vocal ranges, which is expected and not a problem at all. Um, but by and large, we just hit the ground running and never looked back. And I think the work that the two of them were able to accomplish prior to the start of rehearsals is a good reason why the show worked as well as it did, because we did not have to spend two and a half weeks figuring the music out. The music was done and it played beautifully on first attempt. And so what that meant was rehearsals could be dedicated to fine tuning the comedy of the show the physicality of the show, the choreography that's throughout, all kinds of wonderful things that, of course, are just as essential as the music. But I'll tell you, it all stands on the shoulders of the score having been polished to such a, a fine degree before rehearsal started. And that's a rarity. Yeah. And it, what's interesting to me is you look at there's a lot of jukebox musicals, and a lot of music that is taken from different eras or, or different uh like your show, they took these old Italian songs, but music is sort of inherent in us. I mean, people listen to these songs when they're remakes and stuff and they think they're originals or they go, man, I feel like I've heard this song before. I mean, to find music that can emotionally move a story forward, because, you know, in a musical, a mus you know, the music usually moves the story in a certain direction or, or it either paints the color or the mood, tells you where you are, what what era you're in and everything. So this is a real challenge when you're using music that's already been done. You find this music and having to change it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. There was um, one of the, the decisions that was made by the author was that he would have a multiple styles in the show. Uh, the show itself is a is basically fish out of the water. <laughs> Romeo uh, didn't die. Back when he, uh, back when Shakespeare tells tells us he died, instead the twist on this show is that instead of taking drinking poison, he just drank a lot of the friar's sleeping potion and slept for about four hundred years, and he woke up in nineteen sixties Brooklyn, and you know experienced the world very much like what's going on, you know. <laughs> I don't know where I am. And that's a lot of the comedy of the show. And so it, since that's the, the scenario that he's working with, the writer made the decision that Romeo would always sing in a very legit style, very operatic, very what we would think of as traditional Italian vocal style. Yeah. And 
that contrasts wonderfully with the music of basically everyone else that he encounters in 1960s uh, Brooklyn, uh, which is that Rat Pack thing that I mentioned. Um, and, and so you have the two styles uh, contrasting in the show in a really fun way. And there's a lot of, uh, forsooth, forget about it. Kind of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. The whole show is just full of that. And it's really delicious. So, but speaking of the music, that's that's the two musical worlds. So there was a decision that our Romeo, for example, needed to be able to sing in a very legit style. He is rarely, if ever, asked to sing in the way that the Rat Pack style folks need to sing. And that's the fun of the show, hearing those very different vocal styles come together. So a lot of that is just the concept of how do you want your music to function in the show? And then it's about putting that concept on its feet and seeing how well it plays. And in this case, it played beautifully. Right. That's amazing. I mean, you know, the way you talk about this, it's, did you guys, a lot of shows go into rehearsal. A lot of, you know, they start rehearsal, they get in front of an audience and there's a lot of changes because they see how the audience reacts to it. Did you guys have that with this show, you know, either musically or story-wise or, or did it just work? No, the story here is that our show really was written about 16, 17 years ago. Wow. And what happened was the show was an immediate crowd pleaser, uh, we understand, we, we're told, back then. And the show got as far as announcing a pre-Broadway production, sort of close to New York City. Um, and then on opening night, or perhaps the start of previews, uh, someone very close to the production passed away unexpectedly. Oh. And the writer felt like he really needed to just put the piece away for a while because it was very painful. Um, and he's talked publicly about this. Uh, and so he just put the play in a drawer in his desk and shut the drawer. And so for maybe 15 years, it just sat dormant until he met our director, Justin Ross Cohen, and the two of them struck up a conversation and uh, Mark, the author, thought, you know what, maybe it's time to pull that out of the drawer. And he handed it to Justin and the two of them really just went to town on it. They did several readings on the West Coast where they were both living uh, in Los Angeles at the time. They did a production in Wyoming, which was talk about going out of town. Where in Wyoming? Uh, it was a theater. Uh, it was a theater festival in Wyoming on the on a college campus, as well as I recall. That was before I was involved, right? So I don't know too many details. But they did a production up there with a student cast, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we uh, had a marvelous opportunity to do a production here in New York City, which was a, a, a reading production. And what that means for folks who might not quite understand is it was a staged reading. The actors were on script the whole time. They were not memorized, but it was blocked. <laughs> so the cast sat in a horseshoe of, of chairs. And when it was time to stand up and do a scene, they would walk to the center with their books in hand, do the scene back and forth and sing the songs. And I was over on the side uh, playing the piano. We had a drummer. And uh, and we did this reading presentation of it for uh, three presentations in the fall of 2018. Uh, and the, the organization that hosted that was Amas Musical Theater, which has been in the works for a very long time. I think they've been around for 30, 40 years. I can't quite remember, but they've been around for quite a long time. They're quite an established 
uh, uh, off-Broadway nonprofit yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. hosts and sponsors new works and gives marvelous opportunities to a diverse range of artists, both on stage and off. And they recognized how wonderful this piece was. They included it in a November series in, like I said, fall of 2018. And uh, from there, uh, we started to develop a sense of momentum with the piece. And uh, shortly thereafter, it was announced that we would do the four-week run that I described earlier, which happened January of this year, mid-January to mid-February. Well, let's so, hope it. Let's hope it doesn't end there. I hope. Oh, hopefully me it comes too. Yeah, back. it's such a good show. It'll come back. It definitely yeah. will come back. I just know it's it's too good to to go away for long. Now we, we've done other development projects together besides Bernard or Romeo and Bird in it, which we didn't do together. And we, we've developed concerts here and tours. We did Hanalee, which we should talk about that because that's sort of a pop series. Uh, we've done uh, Hazel, the musical, about hate from the TV series. We did Alice in Wonderland, a new take on Alice in Wonderland, which was with Mike or Marco, Mark York. Um, who's doing Galveston, which is a new reading that we're going to do this summer in our development series. And you're also writing a new play or a new musical with Noah Racy. Uh, you know, I want to talk about all those and those di- developments and the different sizes of them, because we've also developed, you know, oh, we actually did hit the deck here. You know, you and you, you, we do tons of different things. Each show has different size orchestras. We've done concerts here, like our giver regards the Broadway concerts, where we develop that whole show and develop an arc to celebrate the 60s or the 1940s or something like that. And that has a full orchestra. We've done, you know, simpler shows. I wouldn't say simpler, but we've done shows like our upcoming Carousel and Concert, which is with a full orchestra, but it's more in the concert, but it's the full show. West Side Story in concert. Those pieces already have the music in place. So let's talk a little bit about working with music from a four-band show like Han Lee to you know, maybe a Broadway pit of 16 to 22 pieces and then moving to you know, a concert series that has 48 to 68 to 80 pieces in the orchestra. Talk a little about the challenges and 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 what you love about doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's certainly one of the funnest parts of what I do is to is to reckon with what arrangements exist and what are we going to use and if some don't exist, are we going to make some? How are we going to make some? Who's going to make them? Um, you mentioned Carousel uh, is a good example of a show that you know, the, all the work on that it was done, you know, back in 1946. Mm-hmm. They orchestrated it. They did the vocal arrangements. Everything is printed out and published. You just receive the music uh, and you pass it out and you learn it and you play it. Um, no one's writing new material for that. But to contrast that with a show like, oh, gosh, when we did our salute to Marvin Hamlish, for example, um, there were a number of songs that we wanted to include that orchestrations didn't exist for. And so we had to get creative and find some, commission some. I wrote some. Uh, and 
And, and in those cases, you really get a chance to get creative and say, wow, what do I, what's appropriate here? Do we need a full symphony arrangement of this song? Or could we get away with a smaller, uh, like a pop band sort of arrangement? And you just get to get more creative and decide how to, to solve those various challenges. You do a lot of restoration too, don't you? Like you, you find old pieces that have that and you restore like old movie scores and stuff like that. Is that part of what you're talking about? you know, what we did with Hamlish, because I think you did it with The King and I, the the, the music, the movie musical. Uh, you restored that and, you, and hit the deck, which was like a 1920s. T- talk a little bit about your restoration experience. experience. Um, I love vintage orchestrations. I think they're so exciting and so evocative. I mean, I think uh, the sound of a 1920s theater orchestra sounds very different than a 1930s, sounds very different than a 1940s. I mean, if you just think in your mind, if you know on the town very well, uh, and then you think how it sounds different than anything goes. Well, they're roughly 10 years apart, uh, and they're just worlds apart in terms of uh, not only the sort of songs that those shows had, but specifically the kinds of orchestrations that they called for, because the things that were in vogue in 1930s Broadway were had been become well outdated 10 years later. Um, and so each, each decade and era of orchestration seems to speak about its own personality. And it seems to sort of convey what was cutting edge at that very moment. Oh, one of the most exciting examples is, um, Oh, talk about uh, girl crazy Gershwin's girl crazy from 1931. Um, famous for having, um, a whole saxophone section in the band. And you say, well, big deal. It was a big deal because there were no shows with saxophone sections. Mm-hmm. You might have had a stray saxophone here or there, but a saxophone section that was leaning toward what we now would have called big band. Mm-hmm. But in 1931, that was still quite early for big band because big band didn't really take off until the late 30s. And of course, really exploded in the World War II era. So by early 31, that was cutting edge to have a saxophone section in your Broadway orchestra. I mean, remember, this is the time of operettas as well, when most orchestras sounded, they were, they were very traditional and classical. You had bassoons and oboes and clarinets and harps and things that are very, uh, you know, very classical to our ears. You didn't have things like sexy saxophones. So that's just <laughs> one example of how you can look at an orchestration and it speaks for its own era in a beautiful way. And what I love to do is to uh, zero in on projects that have surviving orchestrations that we haven't heard in perhaps decades, like Hit the Deck, which is the project you just mentioned from 1927. That show uh, has always been a passion of mine, and I was able to track down the original orchestrations for that show, which hadn't been played, I would say, since about 1938. Might have been around from 1927 to 1937 or 38 or so. But by that point, as I said, trends started to change and those original orchestrations seemed old hat. Mm -hmm. And so they started packing things like saxophones in there and drum kits and all kinds of other things that might not have had such a prominent role back in the 20s. And so that's the reason certain orchestrations sort of fall to the wayside. They seem old to our ears or quaint, but 
there's a wonderful way that things sort of come back to full circle. You know, by 19, oh gosh, 1971, just to point to a very famous example, the famous revival of No No Nanette with Ruby Keeler on Broadway. 1971, that was a revival of a show from 1924. So 34, 44, 54, 64. 66 years, sorry, 46 years passed before that show made it back to Broadway. And everybody says, oh, yes, that's no, no, Nanette. However, the 1971 version sounds like a 1970s Broadway show to our ears. When you mm -hmm. go back and listen to the original 1924 orchestrations, that sounds like Mozart. <laughs> next to what we think of as what we know as no, 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 net. And so the differences are just vast and I really enjoy understanding what those are and, and really doing a deep dive uh, and, and, and bringing those old pieces back to life because I think it's eye-opening to hear a very famous song played with the orchestration that it was originally intended to have. You know, the Gershwin orchestration for I Got Rhythm, for example, sounds very different than what Judy Garland sang in an MGM film 25 years later. Right. It's thrilling to hear the difference and go, wow, oh, that's what George Gershwin wrote. Oh, that's just eye-opening and thrilling I mean, for audiences. You can, you can say the same thing about a lot of musicals that went from Broadway to the movies or movies to Broadway, because the, mu the movie musicals have large orchestras, bigger budgets, and they can get into a studio and they can really orchestrate the hell out of these pieces. You know, on Broadway, you're stuck with, I mean, back in the 20s and the 30s, you might have had a 30-piece band or a 38-piece band. But, you know, nowadays, Broadway has maybe 16 pieces. What, 22 is a big orchestra on Broadway? So, I mean, talk about the difference between moving a Broadway musical to the silver screen and why they change the orchestrations and, 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 you know, is it, is it because it's more popular? I mean, we know that Broadway music was basically the pop music of, of the days back in the thirties, forties and fifties. So talk about moving a musical from the stage to Hollywood or Hollywood to the stage. Cause sometimes you got to take these huge orchestrations and pare them down. Yeah. A lot of it is economics. As you mentioned, the budgets for Hollywood films are so much larger than any Broadway budget ever could have been and you're not limited by the size of your orchestra pit which is why the orchestras are so small on broadway um you know a big orchestra I, I think i read that carousel uh had 38 pieces in the orchestration which was outrageously large at the time but that was something that richard rogers fought for he said no 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 this is a, a classically a uh, broadway piece i want lots of strings i want harps i want you know bassoons and you know you can make an artistic case for a certain size of an orchestra, but by and large, if it's a Broadway show, you're capped at 30, 34 is large, 38 is outrageously large, but he got away with it because he was Richard Rogers. Uh, but by and large, it's a smaller ensemble. And uh, that doesn't, that actually clocks with our memory if you realize that way back then, we didn't have amplification. So there's only so many instruments one singer could have sung on top of in an old theater in, say, 1925. They didn't have orchestra, uh, didn't have microphones. So, you know, the band practically couldn't have been so loud or else the singer would never have been heard on top of it. None of those concerns exist with Hollywood because right. you can record the orchestra in one room and the piano and the vocalists in another room and uh, adjust your uh, levels uh, uh, with machinery. You're not dependent upon real sound coming at you as you would be in a theater back then. And so that just provided all kinds of different 
avenues for exploring the artistic impulses of the writers or the directors or the producers or the choreographers or anybody else who had an artistic voice in how a film uh, came to be made. And it was sort of a, you know, sky is the limit at, at its heyday when MGM uh, was produced and Warner Brothers were, you know, kicking out these fantastically elaborate uh, stage adaptations of Broadway musicals. You know, if Gene Kelly said he wanted, you know, 14 French horns in the ballet of American in Paris, he got 14 <laughs> French horns. Exactly. Gene Kelly. You know, so that's just an example of how, you know, if uh, the artistic impulse just resets and becomes a very different thing uh, when you're transitioning from the stage to the screen. No, that's, that's so true. So, we talked about restoring stuff. So let's go back to developing now. So you, you, your restoration stuff, but these development projects have are, are what we all like to do. You and I like to create, you know, we could get concert shows that are in a package that we could take and we could put them up on our stage, but we'd rather create our own uh, flow or our, our, our own idea of what we want our shows to be. And so, you know, we've, we've done that with a dream as a wish, uh, our Princess Tea in concert. We've done it with our Give Our Regards to Broadway concerts. And we've done it with our Christmas show when we talk about different eras. Our Christmas, our big spectacular, our celebration has, we start in the 50s and goes all the way up to more contemporary and then ends up in classical uh, Christmas songs. So we have five different sections, four of them, five of them have completely different styles of orchestrations and music. So talk, talk about these development process, like Hanalee. Let's start with Hanalee. This is a tour show. And just talk to me what, what you guys do with this. And, and it's a recreation, correct? Uh, yes and no. A band called Hanalee is the actual full name of the group. Mm -hmm. And that's a riff on the lyric from, from Puff the Magic Dragon, a land called Hanalee, but we're a band called Hanalee. Mm -hmm. And, it was started because I loved the music of Peter, Paul and Mary. And I recognized that not a lot of people were singing that music. And I thought that the music still had something to say to us today. A lot of the messages in that group of songs uh, still have resonance today, talking about, you know, all kinds of things that we still recognize are still things that our society is working on or still thinking on or, you know, starting conversations about. It's just really thoughtful stuff. And I thought, you know, instead of recreating what Peter, Paul and Mary actually did in the 1960s, I took it one step further and I said, you know, I don't want to impersonate because that's never as fun as bringing Correct. our own inter artistic impulses to something. And so I made the decision early on with that particular project to take those existing famous and sometimes not very well known songs and sort of reimagine them through a contemporary set of ears. And so I had young artists today who are uh, in their 20s, uh, same age as Peter, Paul and Mary were in their heyday. And I said, what would you, as a young guitarist, uh, do with this song, this uh, Bob Dylan song, for example, or Gordon Lightfoot song? How, what, how would you play this in a way that made you excited, as opposed to saying, how did Peter Yarrow play that song? Mm -hmm. And that was a distinction that we made, and, and I'm very proud of what that gave us. That gave us a show that... Uh, that seemed very current and alive and specific to today and specific to the three 
uh, four people, three or four people I have on stage in that show. There's three singers and then a bass player. That's the fourth person. Um, and so that's an example of how you you look at a, a set of old music and you say to yourself, how am I going to present it today? Do I do it exactly as they had done it? I could. And that's certainly valid and beloved. That's why it's famous. Or can I nod toward that, but also add a little bit of maybe today's sensibilities too, and let it seem that that material has something to say to us today as well. Right. And that's what I think we did with a band called Hanali. And that's, that was an exciting artistic challenge. And, and I'm, was, I'm really glad we did that. Yeah. We did that show at uh, Madison. It was a brilliant show. Our audiences loved it. So talk about the difference between that and like a Galveston now, which is completely new music, correct? Or is that Galveston is a brand new score by uh, Mark York, mm -hmm. uh, who wrote the book and the lyrics and also uh, co-authored the book with his collaborator, Andre Newport. And for that show, very interesting challenge. They tell the story of two brothers who arrived in Galveston in the 19 teens and turned it into this glittering resort destination by the sea, literally the Vegas before Vegas. And it became the place where every headliner played and people would vacation there. And uh, there was gambling and nightclubs and showgirls. And it was just a wild, wonderful uh, sort of uh, place. And that didn't happen overnight. Those two brothers, Sicilian brothers, and that's who the story uh, tracks is these two Sicilian brothers. Uh, they arrive in Galveston in the 19-teens, but it takes them a good 25 years to build that up like that. And so from a score standpoint, Mark York wrote material for them that is specific to the day they stepped off the boat onto the, you know, the pier at Galveston and said, well, here we are, two penniless bums. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And then as the story progresses through the years and as they built their empire, the score also changes and becomes more sophisticated and lines up with what we recognize as a 1920s sound, and ultimately a 1930s sound, and then maybe a late 30s, early 40s Hollywood glamour sound. And it tra it traverses that entire era in, in a really wonderful, fresh, beautiful way. And so that was the, the challenge there. And speaking from the music side of things, then the orchestrations uh, obviously are challenged with how do you make these eras distinct? How do you make something that sounds like it was from the 19-teens, which... Remember, that's when ragtime was hot. Yeah. Sound like, you know, the big band era from the late 1930s. I mean, that couldn't be more different. The difference is I talked about sexy saxophones. I talked about uh, that. I talked about the difference between uh, strings and a more of a classical sensibility as you had earlier. But those sort of fell away as you become more and more uh, uh, leaning toward jazz. Strings really don't exist so much in jazz. Sometimes they're there, but, you know, you, you, you then enter a very sort of wide open field of how are we going to tell this story musically? And that's a very exciting place to stand as a musician to talk about all those different eras. Yeah, that it is amazing. And I find the coloring of an orchestra, I always call it the coloring, is, is the instruments, you know, of what time. And when you get into the 40s and the 50s, that's when it becomes big brassy because you have that's when Sinatra was big. All the popular singers you have, uh, you know, Dean Martin and all, the, you know, a lot of big band brassy stuff. And so Broadway sort of followed suit with that or they might have been leading in that. Uh, but again, when you get to the Rodgers and Hammerstein 
stuff back in the you know late 30s 40s and 50s they still were very string heavy and uh um you know much more classically based but they still that was their style um let's talk a little bit about this new show you're writing i it's in development and i know you guys are still writing you might not want to talk too much about it but how i mean everyone thinks that oh you write a musical you write a musical and you know three months later it's it's in a reading and writing they don't understand yeah you don't they don't understand the changes the the different levels of of workshops and and table reads and everything that you go through and then people have careers you have a family you have a young family so you're you know you get pulled by the family responsibilities you know noah's on tour sometimes and 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 works out of town so sometimes authors and writers get separated for you know six months or a year so talk about the process of, of writing this new show and and the challenges of of just trying to get it completed it, the, the all the things you described are absolutely true. You find that um, you might have an impulse to write a show, and uh, and you get started on it, and you get three months into it, and you realize, well, I can't figure this out. So you might set it aside. For example, a lot of shows start strong and they get set aside because <laughs> the authors might have had a great idea at the beginning, but maybe they didn't quite know how to solve or crack the code. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of not having the right person in the conversation. For example, uh, a lot of times today's directors are huge artistic voices in the creation of shows Mm -hmm. and they can speak up and help a songwriting team or a a set of authors uh, down a very specific path. And if that collaboration is working really, really great, you can find yourself making a lot of progress very quickly. Um, And uh, but just as often there are challenges, you know, you might say, oh, this was a great idea but I just heard about somebody else writing a show about the same thing and they are two years ahead of us. And so, although we might have a great idea, I just read that they're actually in production in Topeka and crap. I was yeah. working on a show once about um, uh, a shoe factory. Have you heard about any shows about a shoe factory in the last 10 years? Oh, absolutely. Kinky boots. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I worked four years on a show about that. Uh, and uh, finally set it aside when it was announced that Cindy Lauper, Harvey Firestein, uh were doing the show called Kinky Boots based on the movie. And it was sort of like, well, how many musicals about a shoe factory can the world have at any given time? So right. there's all kinds of things that can sort of kick the legs up from underneath the show. Um, but, you know, if you have a vision and you really are determined to see it through, uh, you can pivot in those cases around uh, uh, other obstacles that come your way, including life, including other work, including changing uh, cities. Uh, yeah. You know, people move all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's just any number of things can sort of step in the way. And what's the biggest challenge is, I think a long time ago, a producer might have had an idea and said, hey, I want to write, I want to have a show about X, Y, Z. And then they, you know, root around for uh, the authors to come on board. And by the time the authors came on board a project, the timeline was already in place or largely understood. You know, we've got nine months to write the show. We're opening in Philly in November. Right. Get busy. Um, Today, most often, particularly unless you're talking about one of the huge uh, studio adaptations of 
film musicals like Be- uh, not Be- yeah, Beetlejuice, for example, um, which started as a f- obviously famous film and they decided they were going to turn it into a Broadway musical. Those things happen fast. The right. things that don't happen fast anymore are things that an author might come up with and then has to interest a producer in doing. And then the producer has to say, I'm interested. Now let me go see if I can raise money for it. And then that's now you start to understand just how how long it often takes for things to really come all the way into town or even to get on their feet in a developmental scenario uh, around the world. I mean, it's it, 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 it takes a lot of time. A lot of that has to do with the finances of Broadway being as expensive as it is and how even just taking a look, see at an, a project at an early stage can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, absolutely. Thousands of dollars. So. You're like, wow, we can't even see what this is like, much less is it any good without spending hundreds of thousands of dollars? Holy crap. Yeah, have so, you ever, all kinds of obstacles. Have you ever been involved in these shows where you started with one point and what you thought was definitely, this is the show, this is what it's about. And when the show ended up, it was like a completely different show, but it was great. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the pivots. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean- the most obvious example of that, I think, is Hello, Dolly, which is the famous story is Jerry Herman always imagined that to be for Ethel Merman. And Ethel Merman, by that time, one of the biggest Broadway stars in the history of Broadway, it would have been her, what, 14th or 15th Broadway show in which she was the lead. And, you know, an Ethel Merman show was an Ethel Merman show, and it did very specific things for Ethel. And, and there was just that was a very understood model for what a show could be. Ethel passed. Ethel said, no, thanks. I'm done. After Gypsy, she was just like, you know what? I've I've had I've had my time in the sun. I want to put my feet up. So then they started kicking around and they said, who the heck are we going to find? And they found Carol Channing. Well, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Roll up your sleeves, go back to work, because that's a different star who has different demands. So this is just an example of one of any number of uh, kinds of pivots that a team might encounter. Even the great David Merrick, who was the producer of that show. Hello, Dolly. He couldn't get Merman. And they'd been writing it for Merman from the get-go. That's the hilarious thing. But sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want, and you pivot, and you end up with a very different show. I mean, I'm often wondering what Hello, Dolly might have been had they started with Merman uh, instead of uh, Carol Channing. We'll never know. Well, we have an idea. There are some songs that were cut that um, have seen the light of day more recently, um, which are marvelous and sound very much like, oh, yeah, that's what a song would be if Jerry Herman was writing for Ethel Merman, of course it is. You think, oh, yes. And when they lost Merman, those songs got cut. Yeah, talk about trunk, trunk songs, because that's what we call trunk songs. Songs that were written for specific musicals. You know, the composers loved them, but they just didn't work in the show. So they put them in the trunk to pull them out later. And and there's some songs that that were written for one show that got got taken out they tried them in another musical got taken out they tried them for another musical and they finally worked i mean talk about some i mean you're a historian when it comes to some of these musics talk about these trunk songs that had had life beyond what they originally were intended well one of the most famous examples is the man i love which was in i think three different gershwin shows and never worked in any of them and you think (laughs) are you kidding me the man i love it's a beautiful okay, song. Come along, the man I love. I mean, one of the most famous Gershwin songs ever. One of the most achingly gorgeous ballads ever written got cut from three different shows. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, how does that happen? And well, I don't know. 
Uh, and I'm sure George Gershwin was scratching his head too because he knew it was a good show, a good song. And in fact, they went ahead and published the music for it. And uh, other people were like, heck, this is a great song. So singers started recording it and it started appearing on the radio and it became a big hit song. And they were still trying to put it into a show <laughs> and it was still failing and getting cut. I mean, that's just the most amazing story in the world that even a song as famous and as good as that uh, can just sort of, I mean, that's the thing. If writing Broadway shows was easy, people would, everybody would write one and I guess they wouldn't be as marvelous as we think they are, but they really are works of wonder. And sometimes you have to cut what you love the most to make a show work. You, know, you and I have come, you know, have had that happen to us before where I'm like, I love this song. And you're like, it doesn't work, Angela. Like, I, it's got to go. We have to put it in there somewhere. And inevitably it ends up going because I realize, yeah, you're right, Aaron. It doesn't work. So it more. Or the reverse happens, I'm wrong, and you were like, no, 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 it's got to be in for this reason. And I say, I don't know, but let's see. And you were totally right. I mean, yeah. it just happens. It does. That's the beauty of a collaborations, beautiful musical, because music is is very unique when it comes. I mean, words are words and everything, but, you know, the style of music the tempo, the, you know, the chords. I mean, we can talk about music forever. You know, you know, if it's written in, in a minor or a major, all these different things really pull at people's heartstrings. And it's important. It's an important part because it really drives, drives the story. It drives the mood. It drives the era, you know. It can so, really say so much. I mean, it's almost, I mean, there's a reason opera is as, as popular as it is hundreds of years after opera started, um, sometimes the words don't matter. Right. I know that sounds heretical to theater people, but sometimes the music says so much about what that character is experiencing that opera is just an extreme example that, you know, it almost doesn't matter what the words are that are coming out of a singer's mouth when, when they start to sing that melody or when that clarinet line happens to come in or you know just all these things that just sort of make your hair stand up on end can can really move an audience and hit them square between the eyes in a way that words sometimes just can't right never say never but i mean that's just the magic of music and and that's why it's so mysterious sometimes yeah it's the combining of poetry and music just is so powerful and you talk about opera i mean i know you've worked with gilbert and sullivan uh, that organization and ha have recreated some of their older work. Um, it's the same thing. Talk about that. That's a little more, that's like a contemporary opera. Am I not mistaken? Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, um, not exactly. It was um, sort of exists in its own little bubble. In fact, I mean, there was a, a, a British, a period of, in British history when the comic opera uh, was owned lock, stock and barrel by Gilbert and Sullivan. They kind of created their own twist on what, comic opera could be mm -hmm. and they defined their own genre they had a, a repertoire company in which uh the same people sort of played the same kinds of roles in different shows so there was always the tenor and he was always the tenor in every show and there was the soprano and these stock roles that seemed to uh recur uh there was always the the contralto sort of the stern woman who uh might have foiled the lovers initially but somehow sang a, a, an act, a, a song in the second act, which, you know, sort of broke your heart as well. And she turned out to be more than just the villain, you know. And uh, there were sort of these, these tropes, these existing stereotypes that, um, that they built and 
that we still see in in theater today. And so they were hugely influential. And they certainly were uh, uh, aware of the the traditions of grand opera and of lighter opera and of and of theater as well. And they were so brilliant in how they grabbed all these wonderful different influences and sort of rolled them into this brand new concoction. And and that's and Gilbert and Sullivan, obviously being as popular as it was uh, in the early 20th century in the States, had a huge impact on where Broadway went. Uh, and, and so many people, uh, so many people who we are now, you know, recognize as giants like Ira Gershwin, Lorenz Hart, Oscar Hammerstein, point to the witticisms of W.S. Gilbert as being, uh, you know, the thing that might have inspired them or started them writing lyrics in the first place. And and they all tip their hat and sort of define themselves as, oh, I'm going to be. I'm going to be like Gilbert Sullivan, but I'm going to do it my way. So it sort of is like this common seed that so many of the greats uh, point to as being hugely influential in their lives. So, uh, you know, it's the, their works don't appear on Broadway anymore. They appear mostly in opera opera companies these days and companies like New York Gilbert and Sullivan players that specialize in that repertoire. But um, they that, that doesn't mean their influence isn't felt. It's everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this is a good segue because... You know, I always ask, you know, what influences? I know you went to uh, Florida State University, right, to study, and you studied music. Did you get a bachelor's or a master's down there? Uh, I got a bachelor's there. And uh, and and you, you in in musical theater? Yeah. So you were a singer and a dancer too. I was a singer. <laughs> that's that's fun. Uh, so, but what, before my before I even got to my senior year, I realized that's not what I really wanted to do. So I was luckily enough to I, to be able to tailor the the degree track to uh being to studying musical direction and music theater history toward the end there and uh and that was a a very lucky twist of fate because i could have just come out with a regular singing degree but my degree technically is a music theater degree with an emphasis on music direction and music theater history which which basically was independent study toward the end because i was the only person who wanted to have that specialization (laughs) but there were marvelous faculty members uh, at Florida State at the time, who allowed me to independent study with them for credit, and it applied to my degree that gave me all kinds of insights that uh, I still carry uh, with me to this day. That's amazing. It's 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 truly really amazing. I mean, the influence of instructors and teachers and and people in your life are paramount on the direction of what you or what you love in the direction in which your career can take. So this is, you know, I always ask this question as we get to the end of the interview, you know, what person or, or show, what was the influence? What was the aha moment? This is what I really want to do. Was it an instructor? Was it a teacher? Was it your, you know, did you sit down and watch, you know, a musical on, on, on TV or, well, I mean, what was your aha moment? It's probably when my grandmother bought a piano and no one in the family knew how to play. <laughs> really? So I was I was bored and she said, would you like to learn? I'll buy you a couple of books. And so I said, OK. So I taught myself to play from books. Um, and uh, and then I picked up trumpet. And in addition to learning piano, I was learning instruments at the same time. So I always had a band and ultimately an orchestral um perspective on things mm-hmm. that accompanied the piano work uh and then i sang actually quite late i didn't sing till i got to high school uh 
So it was probably my grandmother buying that spinet. Wow. <laughs> I had to point to one thing. And you didn't play in the high school band or high school? I did play in, yeah, I played first trumpet in the high school band. Yeah. And, and now you're an extraordinary piano player. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so if there's, is there a dream show besides the ones that you write and everything? Is there a dream show or something that you like to conduct or be a musical director? Because I know you musical direct besides for me all over the country, you know, you, you did. Oh, gosh. Well, one of the things that I'm super excited about doing is Carousel, which hopefully we can get back on the calendar pretty quickly. Um, uh, I've done the show twice already, but never with full orchestra. And so the thrill of doing it with the South Shore Symphony, I can't wait for. I just can't wait for that experience. And I can't I, I'm so thrilled for audiences to have that experience, too, because as we mentioned earlier, Richard Rogers had a very specific orchestral uh, vision for how that show should sound. And it is not with an eight piece combo. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not with a, a, with a bunch of synthesizers. It, it is very specific to uh, the sorts of resources that an orchestra like the South Shore Symphony has, which is to say a deep roster of strings, legitimate reeds, not saxophones. There's not even a piano in carousel. Uh, there's a harp instead of a piano. And so there were all kinds of wonderful choices that the composer made in that case, which I believe are going to be uh, a thrilling thing to experience uh, when we get to do carousel at the Madison. Absolutely. We're going to be doing that together. We're doing All Shook Up together. Uh, we actually moved Carousel to the summer. It, for our listeners, we'll be doing it July, the weekend of July 17th and 18th or, or 19th, somewhere around there. We also, uh, All Shook Up will be the week prior to that. And we have the Princess concert coming up, and then we're getting ready for our Give Our Regards to Broadway, which we're going to do a salute to the silver screen, you know, Broadway from silver screens, you know, back to, uh, you know, Broadway, either or. So it's going to be an exciting season that we have going. It's our 10th anniversary season. Uh, I think you will be conducting our gala performance where we'll have uh, the great Paul Schaefer is going to be playing with us during that as well. So we're very excited to have Aaron with us and our resident conductor and musical director at the Madison Theater. Uh, that will wrap things up for today's podcast. I want to thank my guest, Aaron Gandy. Aaron, uh, as I said, will be directing uh, or musical directing many of the shows. Actually, you're directing Carousel, am I not, if I'm not mistaken. You're going to direct and conduct that. We're going to co-direct it. And uh, we're also doing this summer Galveston in a stage reading that he'll be working on. So we hope to see you all there. We thank you very much for listening in. And until then, we'll keep the seats warm for you. Bye-bye now. I want to thank producers Kathleen the Machine Marino, Eileen Swagger Sweeney, and the VP of Advancement Edward the Terrific Thompson. Technical support and editing by Calvin the Great Guevara Flores, graphic designs by Francis Bouncing Bonet, and Sarah Prancing Palazzolo.